Well, hello, everyone. It's great to see you guys. And uh, I hope we can, uh, there's no formality or anything. I hope we can just have a great evening together as we uh, spend a bit of time in the Word of God. As uh, Vesi said, I'm Rob. I'm from Dubai. I'm actually originally from Harare, actually, originally, and then from Durban. And uh, led a church in Durban for nine years. And then God in His grace moved us across to Dubai. And we've been leading there for just about 10 years. And I'll be 10 years in August. And it uh, doesn't matter how long you're out of Africa, I promise you it never gets out from under your skin. And uh, it is beautiful to be back home. I was walking around praying this afternoon, um, this incredibly blue sky and these trees, just thinking all the money in the world, all the technology and the best engineers in the world cannot manufacture this. We just can't create that in Dubai, you know. And you have it around you all the time. And uh, never underestimate the privilege of where it is God's called you to live. I do love living where I live. I'm grateful to God for what it is that He is um, doing through us there. But, um, but there's a privilege wherever it is that He places us. Amen. And I'm also grateful to God for um, the fact that He doesn't ever let us rest upon our laurels. That He's continually testing us and moving us forward um, for the glory of His name. I was chatting with Chris a little bit early on. He was talking about... Um, where in Isaiah, the, the angels declare the living creatures, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And uh, we just need to be reminded that we do serve a holy God, that everything that we saw on that screen was created by him and us as well. And, uh, you know, this week I was um, praying for another couple that we work with here. Some of you may know them, Dumi and Salome. And as I was praying for them, I was just praying about the gospel. And I was just, I, tears just began to run down my face as I was praying for them, as I was reminded of the wonder of the gospel. And if we forget that, we've forgotten everything. We've lost our way. We have to be reminded of the fact that we, who are the creatures who are hostile to the Creator God, have been reconciled, reconciled through His own Son, whom He sent to die on our behalf. That is, do you know what I mean? Like, like that is amazing. And every day we wake up, it should be, it should feel like we've won the lotto. Because whatever happens, whatever we're going through, um, we win. At the end of the day, we will spend an eternity with God. And this life, no matter how, how hard it is with its sufferings and wonderful, glorious moments as well, will, is a, a past like this compared to eternity. And it's difficult now to understand it, but when we get there one day, we will look back and we'll go, what was I, what was I grumpy about? You know, what was I worried about? Look, look what I have now. And so I'm married to Linda and um, with three amazing children, I just had it to my daughter a few minutes ago um, before I came here. And she's doing well in Dubai. And my two sons are in South Africa and finishing varsity and schooling there. I, uh, I wanted them to know that they were African and not to think that they were from Dubai. Because we are, as much as we live amongst the Arabs, we are not Arabs. <laughs> and, uh, and there is something beautiful about being rooted um, uh, the church in Dubai is going really amazingly well. I just told Vesey, one of my great weaknesses is actually setting, setting my... Yeah, thanks, Ves. You're amazing, reminding me. Um, so we lead a church here called Well of Life. It's been, actually, it had its 20th, 20th birthday, can you believe that, in January. We've been going for 20 years. Um, and I can't... I mean, I can't even imagine how many people have been impacted by a faith community that gets planted and just keeps doing what God has called it to do. I don't, we haven't had the most amazing strategies, and you know, I don't think anybody's going to come and write a book about Will of Life or anything like that. I hope not. But we have been a faith community 
where God has planted us and people have been um, continually added, people have been saved and baptized, marriages have been restored and strengthened and kids have been raised up. Um, we've watched kids obviously grow 20 years from nothing all the way to adulthood and go on to serve the Lord. Um, we've watched thousands of people, I think, come through the door, spend a season in world of life and then go on to other nations. It is, it is a bit of a you know, revolving door of people coming in and out of Dubai. And uh, so it's a, a great place to be. Um, they're praying for you guys tonight and praying for the church in Zimbabwe. We do have a passionate love for this nation and what God wants to do through this nation. So it's a little bit about what I want to speak about today, which the, the title of my what I want to share is The Gospel Must Go. And I'll share in a moment why I came up with that title, which I mentioned the other day when we were at Warren's place. I want to read the scripture from 2 Timothy 2, verse 8 and 9. So you've got your Bibles, you can pull it out. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I just love the way that it says this. Paul writing, obviously, and he says this. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This, this is the good news I preach. And then listen to this. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained, says Paul. A great missiologist by the name of Leslie Newbegin said this, The church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move, hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end of time to meet his Lord who will gather all into one. I love that sentence. Hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God. And as I'd, I'd actually been back in South Africa over December, and uh, we were getting ready to fly back to Dubai, thinking about this new year. 2020 was almost behind us, that pandemic year. We were about to enter into 2021 where there would be no pandemic anymore because on January the 1st it would disappear. Hallelujah. And I, I, was, I must admit there was this unnatural optimism that filled me like, God, please can we end this year and get on to the next one, you know. And I said, Lord, what do you want to say to us as we start the new year? And I got that phrase entitled this preach, the gospel must go. And I'd had the sense that because of so much uncertainty and we were dealing with something that we'd, we'd never encountered before, if you had asked me in March 2020, how long will this last? I would have said like three weeks at the maximum, four weeks on the outside. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm definitely going to be taking my holiday in July and like these, you know what I mean? I'll, don't worry, India, I'll be there soon. Sri Lanka, I'm coming with the gospel. And it just went on and on and on. And I think what happened was we originally pressed pause like this, like, we don't know what's going to happen next week. We can't gather. We'll just, we'll go online. Let's just press pause for a moment. We just, and I think there was something of God in that. I think um, God took us into a, a season of sabbatical and rest. And there was, it was, I don't think we were being disobedient for that pause. But I felt like as uncertainty continued, we didn't know what was going on. And, and the pause button just continued. And uh, what I felt God was saying to me as we started the new year was press play. The gospel has to begin to move again. And um, I can remember phoning somebody actually in Zimbabwe here and uh, say, are you ready? Are you ready to go? And he said, I'm not quite ready. And I said, I said, but you, you like, <laughs> like, I know you need a bit of a break, but have your break and get on with it because we've, we've got to carry this gospel to the ends of the earth. And uh, I was reflecting as I I've been going through this over a while. Like, what is it that hinders the gospel from going forward? 
And as I was um, reflecting on it, I was taken to a book that you know so well that when I tell you what the book is, you're going to go, Rob, I've read that book. There's nothing you can teach me from the book. Um, I've listened to so many preachers on it. In fact, I'm going to get up and leave right now. As soon as I mention this book, that's going to be your, your attitude. And, um, but I don't want you to do that, okay? I want you to, to stay and to pay attention because I believe God can teach us something from this tonight, something new. And that's the book of Nehemiah. And um, I think you know the story of Israel and Nehemiah and uh, what, what preceded Nehemiah as well. Um, the, the nation of Israel had been split into two. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom had fallen and disappeared. And uh, the southern kingdom continued with um, one or two good kings and quite a few rubbish kings, some pretty wicked kings as well. And finally, God ran out of patience and the promises that he had made that if they had uh, followed him, that he would bless them. Um, were no longer applicable because they just were not following God. They were rebelling against him. And so in 586 BC, and remember now time's moving backwards, so 500 is older than 400 kind of thing. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, the the ruler of Babylon, came through and and swept through um, the southern kingdom, destroying Jerusalem, ripping the walls down, burning the gates, destroying the temple completely, removing all the contents of the temple and and bring it right back to ripping out even the foundations of the temple. And uh, as was a policy of the Babylonians, they, they took the best of uh, that city and they, they exiled them and they were, they were sent to, most of them, to Babylon, the very best to Babylon. And there's a whole lot of stories about the exiles as well. But then in accordance with God's promise in 538 BC, so nearly 50 years later, God um, had preordained that Cyrus, who was then the Persian king, who the year before had overthrown the Babylonian um, empire, that he would then send the exiles back to rebuild the temple. Now remember there's a redemptive story being written here that comes to Christ. There needs to be a Jerusalem. There needs to be a temple when Jesus comes. There is no Jerusalem. There is no temple. And so part of God's redemptive story that leads to Christ and everything that will come from him is that this moment needs to take place. They need to come back. They need to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. And so um, they, they come back, they, they offer sacrifices on the altar, even before the temple's rebuilt. They lay the foundations in, a, in about 536 um, BC. So now the foundations are down. I was talking to Chris again about building something and you know, getting one level done. They've got the foundations down, and now it should just be, let's progress on and let's build the temple except that opposition then comes against them. And so instead of the temple being built in a few years, what happens is it takes 20 years before the temple is completed. And uh, I was reading through Ezra this morning, actually, and it's, it's interesting that um, the, the, op- the guys that are opposing the, the, the building of the temple kept saying this to the king of Persia, that if they get the walls up, then, they, then, then you won't have control of them anymore. If, you get, if they get the walls up, there was even the enemy understood the importance, not just of the temple, but of the walls that surround the city as well. The temple gets completed in 516 BC. And now you're thinking, what's the next thing we've got to do? Build the walls, obviously. Let's get the walls up. Even the enemy knows the walls need to go up. And uh, 516 BC, you think it takes another five years before the walls go up. Another 10 years, maybe. Another 20 years. Maybe another 40 years before the walls go up. 50, 60 years later, the walls still haven't gone up. And what's so remarkable about this is that when Nehemiah finally does come to build the walls, it doesn't take him 15 years to get the walls up. It takes him 52 days to put the walls up. 
And it's like this thing, like there was a mandate that God had given a generation that they just didn't fulfill. Something that could have easily been done by them. And it should have been done in 516 BC. It took until 445 BC, until Nehemiah came back and the walls went up. And there's a sense to which we are given a mandate that God calls us to fulfill. We need to serve our generation. And um, this idea of comparing the rebuilding of ruins to the proclamation of the gospel, we actually see in Isaiah 61. It's the scripture that Jesus read when he uh, he first started his ministry. I don't know if you remember that part in scripture where he kind of gets up in the synagogue, reads the scripture, and then puts it down. And that was the start of his ministry. And it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring, bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And listen to this. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. You see, when we carry the gospel into our workplace, to our neighbor, to, uh, to our friends, and even to our enemies, we are repairing places long devastated. God has created us to be in relationship with him. And everything that works against that is a, is a tearing down of what it actually means to be human and what it means to live, to actually be alive. And so I believe we can learn some really important lessons by looking at what hindered a whole generation from doing what it is that God had called them to do. And I think if these things are left unattended, they will hinder us in the proclamation of the gospel as well. I've got five points. Four of them I'm going to go through in about a minute. And the fifth one I'm going to spend quite a long time on. Number one is a lack of prayer. Um, I remember one of the guys that um, we used to, uh, that used to lead us, a guy by the name of Dudley Daniel, used to speak about um, building sandcastles. I don't know if any of you um, have been to the beach and so you, or maybe even by, if you, yeah, I suppose you'd have to be by the beach. So you build castles out of sand on the beach like this. And the problem is the very first wave that comes in just wipes it out completely as if it didn't exist. Like there's not even a piece of the castle left. It's just like as if nothing had ever happened. And if we build anything without prayer, it's like we're building sandcastles. It, it may look impressive even in our lifetime. It may look like we've done something. People might at our funeral, go, wow, that Rob, he did such amazing things, this, this, and the next thing. But if they were built without prayer, then they count for nothing. And in Nehemiah 1 verse 4, you see that Nehemiah's very first reaction to the news that the walls in Jerusalem are down is to pray. He just come, he's a man of prayer. And, and the whole of that first chapter just about is just Nehemiah's prayer. And I think we need to be a people of prayer. Whatever your well of prayer is, dig it a little bit deeper. You know, begin so that, that when God needs to, he can dip that bucket in and get more and more out. Leah's a really helpful way of praying more. Whenever you think about something that makes you anxious, pray. Whenever you think about somebody that makes you angry, pray for them. Whenever you get irritated about something, pray. Begin to turn our energy into prayer. Number two is a, is a lack of humility. In, again, in verse 4 of chapter 1, Nehemiah hears the news that the walls are down and he begins to repent on behalf of his fathers, but also he himself repents on, the, on their rebellion before God. And I think this is such an amazing stance this guy takes. He's not there to protect his reputation or make sure that people are impressed by him. He takes, 
he, he, he takes a posture of um, humility in his repentance. I was saying to somebody the other day that I think humility is the greatest safeguard from us going off track. Um, and as C.S. Lewis says about humility, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. So Jesus was the most humble person that ever walked the face of the earth. He was also the most confident. He was also the strongest. So humility is not this kind of, I'm a nobody, I'm a worm. It's just that you don't worry about yourself. You're thinking about what God wants and what he, how he wants us to serve other people, which is what we see in Nehemiah. Uh, number three is a lack of visionary leadership. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 20, um, Nehemiah does this inspection as he goes around the broken wall to see what it is that uh, is required to be done. And in verse 12, it's got this amazing verse where it says, I was the only one on a horse. Everyone else was walking, and Nehemiah was on a horse, and it, he had a different perspective of everything that was going on. They were seeing it from this height, and he was seeing it from this height here. And I believe that God anoints um, certain men with visionary leadership to lead his people um, specifically so that they can advance the gospel moving forward. And uh, one of the curses that has come upon the church is that we've put managers in charge of churches instead of leaders in charge of churches. And I, I think one of the, the great things that we do is we, um, is by not, and I think one of the things, that the benefits we have is that we have eldership governed churches and not congregational led churches where the, the elders are trying to win the votes of people. They don't have to do that. They can actually say, God, not what have you called me, what is my vision that I can impart to people, but what is your vision for this church that I can articulate and call us to follow? I think that's essential. D, and this goes back to the congregation, a lack of wholehearted participation. If you look at um, uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, it's, it's consistently speaks of next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him. It's everybody got involved in rebuilding the wall. And if we're going to do this, if we're going to take this great gospel message to this nation and to the nations of the earth, every single person has to be involved. And it doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily be a full-time preacher or an evangelist or any of those sorts of things. Everybody has a role to play. And, um, and I love the fact that um, if you go look in that passage in Nehemiah chapter 3, the perfume makers were not going, you know what, I'm a perfume maker. Look at these hands. Dude, what I? I can't be carrying bricks. The perfume makers were building the wall in front of their house. The, the jewelry makers were building the section of the wall in front of them. And so whatever our gifting is, this is a task that all of us are involved in. And uh, we may have different aspects to it, but we all are involved. And then lastly, number five, is opposition from the enemy. And this is where I want to spend a bit of time this evening. That we do have an enemy, you know that, hey. This is a season full of conspiracy theories, am I right? You can go onto Twitter or YouTube or wherever you go to get your, your daily fix of um, um, what's going on around the world. And uh, you'll hear, there are theories all over the place about this, that, and the next happening. I actually don't really, I'm not one of those people that um, shuns conspiracy theories because I know we actually do have an enemy who is seeking to undermine the work of God. He is coordinated, he is wise, and he is working at every, with, with great power and effort to undermine the work of God on earth today. And uh, he will use whoever he wants to and whoever he's able to, to be able to forward his agenda, which is the exact opposite of God's agenda. So I'm not giving credence to your particular um, conspiracy theory. I'm just saying that we do have an enemy. And in this book, it's personified in 
these three guys that we meet in chapter, uh, chapter 2, I think it is, in verse 1, or the end of chapter 2, rather. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And uh, we meet these three guys, and these three guys are actually, like, they're the personification of Satan in this story. They work against the very purposes of God that are being carried out. And um, these same antichrist tactics continue today. That same spirit is at work to um, work against the very intent of God and what he wants to do. Now, remember, um, the rebuilding is actually the proclamation of the gospel. How do we rebuild a nation? You proclaim the gospel. How do you rebuild a marriage? You bring the gospel into it. I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus is the answer to every single question. And so no matter, I mean, I've sat down with people. I remember a guy coming to me the one time. He said, I'm leaving my wife. This is in Dubai. Met him in a coffee shop. He says, I'm leaving my wife. You know, my, my first question to him was, what about Jesus? Like, 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 like I don't, I'm not going to argue with you about anything, but what about Jesus? How can you do this if you love Jesus? And uh, his answer was, he doesn't love Jesus anymore. And there was no other woman, he said, but there was. And, um, but, it's, but the truth of the matter is that, it's, that the relationship with Jesus is what puts everything else into order. Nehemiah 4 verse 1 says this, Now when Sanballat, remember, we're talking the devil, yeah, heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. When the enemy hears that we want to preach the gospel, when, he, when you come before God and you say, you know what, God, I'm sick and tired of messing around. I want to get serious with you, and I want you to use me. I want to be like Isaiah when he said, here I am, Lord, use me. When you do that, the enemy is going to get angry and he's going to work against you when a church sets its its stall out to actually be a carrier of the gospel to a nation um, to proclaim it to live it to demonstrate it the enemy gets angry and comes against us it's not something to be fearful about because we have everything we need to overcome him but peter does warn us that we need to be alert to the devil's schemes we can't be so foolish because we end up um, not understanding the ways that he's attacking us and then falling um foul to that so I've got quite a few points, which I'm not going to get through all of them tonight, but I'm going to get through some of them, okay? Number one, under this thing of the opposition from the enemy, is Satan will emasculate you. In chapter 4 and verse 2, there's a, there's a little cluster of these tactics of the enemy. And in verse 2, it says this, what are these feeble Jews doing? God comes to you and he says to you, oh, mighty man or mighty woman of God. But the devil comes to you and he says, you're just a worm. He, uh, he points out how weak we are. He was at work in Moses when God met him at the burning bush. And God said to Moses, this is the, the assignment that I've given you. And Moses says to him, hey, Father, who am I? I'm a nobody. Please send Vesey, Lord. Don't send me. And, um, and that's, that's what he wants us to do. The enemy wants us to believe that we're nothing. One of the things that you'll see um, as we go through this is that Satan is is very clever at, at taking a lie and wrapping it in truth and then feeding it to us so that we will swallow it. I was uh, using this illustration the other day. I'd been out in the, one of the rural areas, I think in Kai, and they were serving that, is it okra, hey? What's it called? With that stringy, nasty stuff that like, like they dished it up and I walked with my plate and it was still stuck to the pot like this. I'm like, and I was, oh, please, Jesus, what is going on here? What do I have to... I, um, anyway, I ate around it because that stuff wasn't going in. Yeah, I was worried there would be a string going through my throat out loud as well. But I was saying, the way that you could get me to eat that is if you bought a beautiful fillet steak 
and then you stuck it on some charcoal and you cooked it up medium rare and then you cut it open. You snuck it inside there and then you served me the steak. That's the way to do it. And the devil does that. He takes the truth, he cuts it open, he slips a lie in there and then he feeds it to us. So we, we, we swallow it whole. We don't realize we're even taking the lie. And the truth is that we actually are weak, but our weakness is not the issue. God chooses the weak to use. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says this, My power is made perfect in weakness. This is God speaking to Paul. And Paul had said to him, God, take this from me. I'm, I'm weakened by this. And he said, Paul, don't even worry about that. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And um, Paul's response to that revelation was this, and carrying on in verse 9, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I have learned over the years that I'm not perfect. And my wife knew all along, but I'm le- I've learned along the way. And I, I kind of had this idea in my head that I would, I would somehow become perfect as I moved along. You know? So maybe just before I became an elder, I would be like, hit almost near nirvana perfection of, of, as I could be. And, and then I got to be an elder, and clearly that wasn't the case. The evidence proved to the contrary. And then I thought, well, maybe when, one day when I'm a lead elder and that wasn't the barrier, the, the mark either. And no matter how I've journeyed with God, I've never come to the place where I'm perfect. And one of the areas where I'm, um, at times I can be most imperfect is actually in being a husband to my wife. And uh, I remember R.T. Kendall preaching once on, on the thorn in the flesh from the same passage that I was referring to a moment ago. And I remember him speaking about the fact that sometimes he spoke about different things that could be thorns in the flesh. I think I've got a fairly good idea what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. You can come ask me afterwards if you want to know what it was. But, um, but Artie Kendall spoke about, you know, like maybe your business or maybe your finances, maybe your marriage or whatever it was. And I remember when he said that marriage could be a, a thorn in the flesh, I thought, I was actually offended. I thought, Artie, how am I supposed to sit down with a couple who are going through a tough time and say to them, listen, bro, your marriage is just a thorn in the flesh. You're just going to have to, you know, God's power is made perfect in your weakness, you know. And then as I spent a bit of time reflecting on it later, I, I came to realize that Artie Kendall was right. There are some things I can do in the natural. I think I'm a pretty good dad. I almost, and look, I understand the grace of God is on everybody to some extent. So that grace on everybody. But I think I would be a good dad. Actually, I don't know if I would be. But I would be a good businessman, I think, even without God. Let me, say, let me use that one. Because I think I'd be a, I think probably would have been a shoddy dad without God's grace. But I think I would be a good businessman. But equally, you can see guys that are Muslims or atheists that are amazing dads or amazing mothers, and we can actually learn something from them through. And then, but, but the one area that I know that I would not be um, even possible at without the grace of God is my marriage. And all that means is that I, I always have to admit, God, I need you in my marriage. It doesn't mean I, I don't have a great marriage. It just means I cannot have a great marriage without the grace of God. It just means the moment I think I can do this on my own, I'm I'm in trouble. But if I continue to acknowledge, God, I need you in this marriage. I need you today. Help me to be a better husband today. Help me to learn what it means to be patient or what it means to be sacrificial and loving in the way that you love your own bride. Then I, then I receive the grace of God and I can have this, these, this amazing marriage with God. But, but if I think I can do it on my own, I'm completely done for. And the enemy comes to you and he says to you, you're weak. And now we don't have to argue, argue with him anymore. We just go, Absolutely. Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness. And we can say, I am weak. I'm I'm not good enough. Who's worthy of this task of 
proclaiming this gospel, but I'm ready to be used by God because His grace is made manifest in us as we do this. And as I said, even the perfume maker gets to build the wall. And you may not be the most articulate person or the boldest person or whatever it is, but there is a role for you to play in the kingdom of God to see that gospel going forward. I actually believe that every single one of us should be sharing the gospel and seeing somebody come to salvation every single year. And it's so, it's like once you do it, once you step out and you just ask God for the opportunity and, and, it, and it comes up and you, with all of your inadequacy, you step into that role and God uses you to share the gospel and, and even lead somebody into salvation. You realize, man, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I want to encourage you to, uh, to just agree with the devil and step out in the grace of God. Number two, Satan will tell you you are alone. Verse two again, he says, will they restore it for themselves? When the devil finds a tactic that works, he sticks to it. He's not very creative, but he's, uh, but he's not stupid. When he finds a route that works, he does it. He follows it again and again, and he's used this throughout Scripture, trying to isolate people, trying to get people to think that they're the only one. I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm the only one that suffered this way. I'm the only one that has this passion for God or whatever it is. And um, Elijah thought he was alone. Remember after he had been in that battle against the prophets of Baal, and then he, he, he ends up um, under that tree, and he says to God, I'm the only one, Lord. I'm all by myself. I'm so lonely. And God says to him, Elijah, you're not alone. There's, seven, no, there's not seven others that I've kept. There's not 700 others that I've kept. There's 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal or kissed the idol. And um, we have to be reminded of the fact that we're not alone. You're not alone here in Zimbabwe. You're not alone as um, um, King's City Church. You're not alone as um, even in the city here and even in this nation here, just in the front row, there's three churches that are represented here. Will of Life is with you in this journey as well. There are, there are um, others in the city that are not even connected with us, that are part of the same work that we are doing. There's a kingdom that's advancing. I was um, telling Warren yesterday we, we, we had a meal at his place, but I was out on Dumi's farm, and I was walking, and as I'm walking, I hear this like, noise like this, and I'm thinking, what is my, my shoes here? What's happening? And I look down at those cutting termites. They just, they, um, there was some leftover maize, and they were just cutting it up like this. I could hear them working. And I, as you get as you, from far, you can't quite see them. But as you go down, you just see there's hundreds of these termites at work. And this almost impossible task is being done because there's so many of them. If we were to sweep out of the earth and then come back down and look, you would see that there are Christians at work all over the face of the earth. In every single country, in every single situation, in every city, in every village, in every town, in every high point, in every low point, God has sent his people and they are working. All over the city, people are working. And that's the, the promise that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28 verse 20 is that he says to us, and remember this, that I'll be with you even till the end of the age. You are not alone, and we are not alone. We've got a great work to do, but we've got others that are doing it with us. Number three, Satan will impose illegitimate expectations. In verse two again, I told you there was a cluster there. He says this, will they finish up in a day? Isn't that just like the devil? <laughs> I mean, it's been 60 years. No one's, no one's finished, even started the wall in 60 years. And then he comes to you and says, Will, will they be finished in a day? It's like you come to, I can remember leading a, um, a lady to, into salvation. She was literally on her deathbed. She, had, she was absolutely riddled with cancer. And a friend of mine took me to go see her. And, um, and so I got to share the gospel with her, an old lady. 
And I led her in a prayer of salvation at the bedside there. And, and as I kind of finished, she, she burped, which obviously was very painful for her. And she let out the swear word. I've just led her to Jesus. And the first word that comes out of her mouth is a swear word like this. And I, just, and I said to her, it's fine. It just proves that sanctification is a process. And see, our journey with God is like that. We, there is a progression. And, and sometimes the devil comes to us and he says, like, are you, are you not perfect yet? What? Who said it was going to happen in a day? It's this long journey. But as you keep faithfully taking one step like this, by the end of the year, you, you're, and I, this sounds ridiculous to say, but you know what I mean. You're more holy than you were at the beginning of the year. You're living out. You're more like Christ at the end of the year than you were at the beginning, at the end of two years and four years and five years. And there may be some areas that were hidden away that come to the surface that make you feel like you're going backwards, but you're not. God's just going deeper in his work in your life. The reason why the devil is able to use this tactic is because the work that God has given us to do is so overpowering. Nearly 8 billion people on this planet. And there's billions that need to hear the gospel. And there's, there, are, there are billions that are actively opposed to the gospel as well. And, and when we think about that task, it can sometimes seem overwhelming. Maybe it seems overwhelming to you to even reach your neighbor. Do you know what I mean? Like you've, you've said to him before, like, hey, Mr whatever, Jones, what about coming to church next week? And he goes, oh, I hate church. You Christians are so stupid. You're like this. You know, oh, I never want to ask anybody again. And, um, but the question that we need to ask is not um, how big this work is, but what is my assignment? My watch is going off. What are you trying to do, watch? I'm telling my time's up, but I don't believe it. What is my assignment? 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Paul says this. Listen to this, hey? But I will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. Not, not the, all of the work, but what has God called um, King City to do? What has God called you to do? The, the beautiful, there's this incredible picture of, of Nehemiah as he builds this wall. So they've got, it, they've got this wall all around the city. It goes, yeah, fish gate, that gate, east gate, whatever. And it's got all, all the way around like this has got to be built. This massive wall. And it, um, it's, been, it's such a big project that it's made... Everybody that's thought about it before not even want to start it. And Nehemiah says, you know what I'm going to do? Warren, can you build the wall in front of your house? And Andre, can you build the wall in front of your house? And every one of us, he goes and he just says, can you build the wall in front of your house? And they look at that section and they go, yeah, I mean, that's manageable. I, I can do that. I mean, when I think of the whole wall, I, I wouldn't know where to start, but I can do that section in front of my house. And that's what God calls us to do. We, we get to share this task with others, this army of Cutting termites sounds so destructive. Maybe there's some other, you know, there's something else we can be. But there's this army of these, um, um, these soldiers of God at work all over the face of the earth. You're a part of that. So you don't have to do all of it. What's the wall that is in front of your house? And King City, what is the wall that is in front of your house? Just do that part of it. I don't have to save Dubai. I don't have to save the Middle East. That's, that's my, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's like so much. How could I possibly do that? I want to be... Faithful to what God has commanded me to do. I get up each day to use a cricket analogy, and I play the ball that's bowled at me. That's all I've got to do. So there it comes. I'm going to go, okay, that, I can hit that one. <laughs> I give it a good tonk like this. And the next day, there's another ball. I play that one. I don't have to go out running off the balls over there and running off the balls over there and playing the balls that are bowled to Andre. I've just got to deal with what it is that I've got to face. Fifteen times in Nehemiah chapter 3, it says next to him. And 44 different people or group are mentioned in that chapter. That's what it took 
to build the world. That's what it takes to build and to advance the gospel is for us to do our work and trust that the guy next to us is doing his work. Even if they're doing it in a way that we would never do it. Like there's some churches in our city that I think I would never build church that way. I would rather not be in ministry. <laughs> I mean it. I mean, I'm not being, they're not even, it's not even heresy. It's just, I could never build church that way. That's just because of who God has called me to be. But he's not accountable to me. He doesn't answer to me for building the church. He answers to God. And so I celebrate them and I pray for them and I trust that God blesses them. That's, that's between him and God. He's got to take care of the wall in front of him. It, it, I, I don't have to worry about what other people are doing. I get to focus on what God has called me and us to do. And at the end of the day, in Nehemiah 6, verse 16, this is what they said. The work has been accomplished with the help of our God. This whole thing goes up in 52 days because God actually was the one that was doing the work. I build here, you build there, and God puts it all together as this completed work. Number four is that Satan heaps condemnation by reminding us of our past. Verse 2 again. This is what the enemy says. Will they revive these stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Satan's name means accuser. And it tells us something. He lives to accuse. He wants to come continually and remind us of the things that we've done wrong. And he tells us that we damaged and we burned stones because of whatever it is that's that's happened in our past. Maybe, Maybe we have been sexually immoral. Maybe we have betrayed other people, or we've been betrayed by other people. Maybe we've been violated, or we've been, um, um, we've been addicted to substances, or whatever it is that there's something in our, in our past, or even that's happening in our lives right now, that makes us feel like we damaged goods. I remember when I was younger, <clears throat> probably my teens, I saw, remember when you used to go to the video shops, and you used to go hire the videos? Remember those days? Some people don't even remember, what are you talking about? What are videos? Yeah. So uh, we, there was no internet, and if we wanted to watch a movie, we used to go into the store and actually hire it. But I remember the one was a cover of a, a man holding this woman, and they were both naked, but you couldn't see anything. And it was called, it was called Damaged Goods. And I remember it, like, it just kind of burnt in my, my head that, that the idea in the story, I assume, was that this woman was damaged goods and not wanted. You know? And it's, it's amazing that we can get to the place where we think, well, we damaged goods. We talk, people actually talk about other people like that, like she's damaged goods. You know, maybe she slept around or something, like she's damaged goods or that guy's damaged goods or whatever it is. And Satan comes and he looks at these stones and he says, these are burnt stones. You can't build the kingdom with this. And he's looking at us. And he's like, you know, you're a burnt stone. You're a burnt stone. You're a burnt stone. You're these, these damaged goods. I found like whenever God would come and speak to me and, and he, was, he was trying to get me to get on with the mission that he, that he wanted me to follow, I had um, come to know the Lord when I was at school, got saved at that point, and then when I went to varsity, I went through a, a time of backsliding. It wasn't profound, or I didn't get into any sort of major radical sin. I had quite a, my wife was my girlfriend at the time, and she, she kind of played the role of the Holy Spirit a lot of the time to keep me on the straight and narrow. Um, still does, yeah. But I, um, but as but we, we started really, um, beginning to serve God, and, and, and I mean, I remember the one day I was sitting in the balcony, and I just, I was telling Chris about this as well, we had a long conversation, we chatted about so much, um, but I, I came to this realization, I, God is, if you're God, you're God, I mean, I can't, like, I can't call you God and treat you as if you, this, whatever, it's like, you, if you're God, that word means you everything, you have complete control, I can't have you in a box, and, but even though I had, came to that revelation, every time 
God would say, Rob, I want you to step up and do this. He would call me into something. The devil would come knocking on the door, and he would knock like this, and I'd open the door and say, hey, Rob, I know God was just here speaking about this. I just want to remind you of that. Remember you did that. Remember you thought this, and remember that attitude that you had. And I would have to agree with the devil because he was right. He wasn't lying. He was actually saying the things that were true. And I'd go, actually, you're right, devil. Okay, I'm not going to do it. And this happened again and again. I mean, not he obviously didn't literally come knock on my door. It's kind of going on in my head space. And, um, and I felt like the Lord said to me one day, why do you keep agreeing with the devil? Why don't you ever agree with me? See, God doesn't mind using burn stones. It's not an excuse for sin. And, uh, and I, the, the agreement I came to with God was this, God, the reason why I say no is I don't want my character, my character flaws to ever hurt people if I step into something you've called me to and, and then other people get hurt because of my, my weaknesses of character. So I will say yes because you know that you've done the work by your Holy Spirit inside of me that whatever my past, whatever my mistakes were, they're not going to be mistakes that will, be, um, will hinder me going forward. And so God takes these burned stones and he uses them to build a kingdom. One of the, the, high, the high priest at the time, just preceding Nehemiah, was a man by the name of Joshua. And he was, he'd actually been a part of rebuilding the temple, and then he was a high priest once the temple was built as well. And Zechariah, who was one of the prophets that was preaching and prophesying at the time, has this prophetic vision about Joshua in Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 5. And this is what it says. It's, it's this amazing passage of Scripture. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, to accuse him. That's what he does. And the Lord said to Satan, I really agree with you, Satan. No, he didn't say that. The, Lord's, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Rob or whoever rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to, and to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I am so grateful to God for the gift of repentance. I'm so grateful that when I mess up, that I can go to God, I can go quickly to Him. I don't have to worry about like, like spending months and months in some sort of penance. I just turn to God, say, God, I'm really sorry for what took place there. Won't you forgive me? Won't you cleanse me from unrighteousness? And it's not that it, in a moment like that I just step past it. But I step in a moment like that, I step back to God. I don't spend any time with my back turned to God because I know that He's the one that I need to go to. And He will take this burnt stone and He will use it for His good. And uh, God, we are those burning sticks that God picks from the fire like that. There's people all around us that should be using the kingdom of God that are disqualifying themselves because they think they're burnt stones. And maybe you doing that. And God wants to remind you that there is, as Paul writes in Romans 8, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the gospel is extraordinary. I met with a man the one time and he was, he was caught in some sin. I said to him, well, when you sin, you need to repent. He said, I can't keep repenting. He said, I sin, if I, what if I, I sin now and then I repent and then I sin 10 minutes later and then I repent? I said, buddy, if Jesus tells us to forgive 70 times 7, if, if our brother comes to us and says, I'm sorry, and, and they're sincere in their apology, and we need to forgive them, and then forgive them again, and then forgive them again, and then forgive them again, how much more will God not forgive us? And it's in the power of repentance that God brings the, the cleansing into our lives as well. Don't ever stop turning around. There was this uh, American pastor by the name of Ted Haggard, and um, he, he came into the news 
some years ago, he had ended up um, being in a um, homosexual relationship with some male escorts. He had a massive church. He was a confidant to presidents and things like that. When he finally confessed this, and it took a while, he wrote a letter to the church, and he said this. He said, this has always been a darkness in my life. He says, from when I was a young man, this, this um, same-sex attraction. And he said, but I used to bring it out in the open. I used to, I used to was always accountable. I used to um, go to people, and they would, um, I would speak to them about it, and they would hold me accountable to it. It was always in the light. And then because I didn't get the victory over this thing that I felt like needed to fit with the profile that I had, I stopped speaking about it. He says that the more I hid it in the dark, the bigger it grew. And uh, friends, if we will recognize that there is, there's, no, there's no shame when we come to God. He is the, the perfect loving Father who will receive us. And that's, I, I promise you, that is the only reason that I can be standing here today in Zimbabwe and preaching to you is because along the way, the, the Heavenly Father has changed the clothing on me again and again and again. I didn't just meet the cross once. I've met the cross of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. Again, I'm not excusing sin. I'm not in sin tonight. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But when I do fall into sin, I immediately deal with it before the Lord. And then I don't wait. I get on with what God has called us to. Number five, Satan belittles our work. Chapter four and verse four, he says, this is the enemy saying this. If a fox goes up onto it, he will break down their stone wall. <laughs> This, they've been building this wall with big stones like this. And he says, well, if even a little fox gets on that thing, he's going to knock it down. And the enemy wants to belittle the work that you're doing. You might look at somebody else and see what they're doing and then look at your work. And the devil goes, not very impressive, eh, what you're doing. It's not all that much. And then he wants you to, to give up and work when it's, walk away when it's not complete. That's what this enemy was, enemy was hoping they would do. This wall had begun to be built. And he hoped they would look at it and go, it's not very impressive, and just walk away before it was finished. And um, the demons um, do that. They come and they chirp at us all the time. Maybe, maybe you've been sharing the gospel with somebody, and you haven't seen the fruit that you would like to see. And so the, the demons come and they chirp you, and they say, this is, not, this is useless. This is, this, maybe you've been um, walking with somebody, and they're beginning to just be, get on the journey, and the devil's going, that's not going to last it may look like it. Maybe you'll walk for a couple of years with them. They'll just turn away again. Maybe you're the kind of person that loves to show into the lives of other people. My wife is like that. She, um, I don't know if you've ever done that um, strength finders, like a, it's like a personality testing type. And Linda, two of Linda's strengths are empathy and developer. So she, it would just mean she feels what other people feel. She can, she can really intuit, intuitively discern where people are at. And she loves to take people on a journey and bring them from brokenness to wholeness or from you know, ineffectiveness to effectiveness. And so in her, in, her, in her ministry walk, that's what she's done. Along the way, though, some people have turned their back on her. Some people have betrayed her. Some people have left for good reasons. Some, some people have left for bad reasons. And the enemy comes in at that point and he goes, what a waste of your life. What a waste. You know, you, you help that couple with their marriage, and they've, they've left the church. They've gone to another church. They don't even, they don't even pay any attention to you, you know. Um, you've helped this person. Now they've turned their back on God, and they've walked away. What a waste like this. All he wants is for Linda to stop when the wall is halfway built instead of continuing. I heard this amazing story. We read it the other day on Facebook. I verified it was true, so I'm not just propagating fake news to you. You may have read it as well. It was a story of David and Sphere Flood. If you read that on fa Facebook. The Swedish couple in 1921, they, they left Sweden to go plant a church 
or to start a work in the Belgian Congo, not to plant a church, but to reach this village. And um, they arrive, they meet this other um, Swedish missionary couple called the Ericsons, and they get their village that they allocated to, and they make the journey out to the village. The chief of the village says to them, under no circumstances are you going to even step foot in our village. I don't want to hear this God that you're talking about. And so they set up home up on the hill um, nearby the village. And the only person that was allowed to have contact with them was a little boy that could bring them chickens and eggs and sell those to them each day away off, and he would make that journey. After years, they had had made zero impact upon the village. But the wife had decided that what she would do was, if there was the only person she could speak to was this boy, she would share the gospel with him. And she eventually led this boy to the Lord. She also felt pregnant in the time that she was there. And while she was giving birth, she died. And the husband was so angry with God, what had happened. I've been here these years. I've accomplished absolutely nothing. My wife is dead. He took this baby, and he gave it to that other missionary couple, and he went back to Sweden full of resentment to God for what had happened. This little girl was taken to America, which was adopted by a family. Her name was Aggie. And some years later, she weirdly gets a Swedish missionary magazine come to her home. She'd been studying, oh, she was a seminary. And she opens this up, and she sees a picture there with a gravestone with her mother's name, Svea Flood, on this gravestone. She can't read it, so she gets someone to interpret it for her, translate it. And she finds out that this little boy had led the whole village to the Lord. He had led his school friends to the Lord. And even that chief had come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so she sets out to find her father, her birth father, travels back to Sweden, sees him. He's bitter still these many years later with God. And she explains to him what had happened and how there was fruit from their time there. And he was reconciled to God before his death. Sometime later, she goes to a conference where there's a man that's come out, Belgian Congo now, Zaire, had come out. He was a superintendent of a, a, a group of churches there that numbered in its members 110,000 believers. The man that spoke, the superintendent, was that little boy that her mother had led to the Lord. You see, we don't know. We just, we simply don't know what happens when we take that little bit, that, little, that section of the wall that's in front of our house that seems so silly and innocuous, we don't get to measure it. We just get to be faithful with it. That's all. And so many people are sitting doing absolutely nothing because they think they can't accomplish anything when the thing that you do is something. Don't let the devil be the one that gets to measure your work. He will tell you again and again that if a fox gets on that thing, it's going to fall down, but it won't. I've got two more. that I'm, I've got more, but I've got two that I'll go through. Sorry, I'm organizing the whole altar here. Number six. Satan threatens to kill those that you love and to kill you. You see, when he can't work around the corners and he can't intimidate you by kind of misleading you, he will actually come at you and threaten to take you out. And some of you have felt that threat over your life. In verse 11 of chapter 4, it says, They will not know or see it till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. I had a lunch the other day with this German couple um, in Dubai. They, they were old. I don't know, like, like they're 70 or something like that. Um, even for me, that feels like it's old. And uh, um, although that, that target moves all the time, the older I get, the, the further away old gets, you know. Um, so when they were young, young newly married couple, um, they'd actually come together with this goal of wanting to carry the gospel into India. They'd gone to Sri Lanka, 
So this was ages ago, many, many years ago, to be trained. And after being trained there, their plan was to go to India and carry the gospel into India. They'd ended up going, being sent to Kashmir, which is in the north of India. It was a, a real conflict point between um, the kind of the Pakistani Muslims and the, Christ, and the Hin, in, Indian Hindu um, forces. They ended up there, and, and God led them to build this amazing work. They, they set up this um, factory that built blocks, and they began to um, sell these blocks, but it gave them a, an access into the community. They built this home for many of the refugee, Muslim refugee women that had um, lost their husbands or been abused to be able to come into this home and be cared for and loved. And then, um, and things were going amazingly well, and then one day it just went crazy. It was like um, they, had, they were being shot at, they would, at, at, um, they would go to roadblocks, and the, the, the guys would, guns would come out, they'd start shooting, they'd be driving with bullets, smashing the windscreens, bullet holes all in the cars. The guys just came, he said there was like a swarm of ants just coming over. They burnt this factory that they built. They, they accused him of sleeping with all of the women that they were um, looking after in this home like this. They burnt down the home. The, this, this incredible work was just destroyed in a moment like this. And um, they, were, they, had, they were literally, their lives were in danger. And some of the, the, the people said, it's just too hard. We can't stay here. And they, and they left and they went back to the countries where they would come from. And he heard Jesus say this to him, do not fear him who can only destroy the body. And they stayed in the midst of it. They, they stuck it out. And um, I'm not saying that you need to throw yourself into life-threatening situations, though actually I think we should, actually. I, we had a, an, a couple on eldership with us. I'll come back to the story in a second. But we had a couple on eldership with us, and um, the wife ended up in ICU. Before she had COVID so bad. And at one point it was, it was touch and go as to whether she would make it. You know how she got COVID? There's a young lady in our church who they have loved and cared for who has been so terribly abused in her life. She, she came into our church. And her husband left her in the time that she was in our church. She is so broken. They have loved her and cared for this, this girl. She can't, go even, she can't go to a doctor without one of this couple going with her and caring for her. So they have, like, above and beyond... I, Honestly, I don't think I could, I could do this. They have loved her. And she's not lovable. Do you know what I mean? It's like you might think like you take, pick up a cute little baby. Well, that's lovable. This is, this is broken. This is damaged goods. And God says, I want you to use her to build the kingdom of God. And so this girl gets COVID. And you know what this elder's wife does? She moves into her home, into an apartment with her to look after her while she has COVID. And then she catches COVID. And that's the place a Christian should be. They should be amongst those that are sick and dying, because we know where we go. Do you know what I mean? We, we know what happens to us, and so we, we can't be so careful of our lives. I, I think one of the things that this COVID crisis has brought out is that we've elevated safety to a place that God never intended to be. You know, we are, we are, we're not supposed to live safe lives. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to, our lives should be engaged with the dangerous all the time. And, um, but, but, but at the same time, we, we recognize that the, the enemy who wants to kill us, we should be fighting back against him. And this German couple said to me, you know what we realized? We had no idea about spiritual warfare. We, he said we were so naive. We went in where we thought, well, just do all of this. And it doesn't matter what's taking place in the spiritual realm. And what had happened was that they were not protected in the spiritual realm. And so it manifest, manifested in the physical realm. And he, he learned about spiritual warfare. And so he he. Um, he now has an army of people. He said, I can pick up my phone, and within an hour, I can have several hundred people praying into a situation. And he said, not promising to pray, 
praying into the situation. That's going to change the dynamic. He was invited recently. He went, he went and built one of those factories in Afghanistan. And ISIS approached him and said to him, that there's one town that they hold. that they're like, like it's a stronghold for ISIS. And they sent representatives. And they said, why haven't you built a factory in this town? So he went to build a factory there. And it's a, it's a channel for the gospel in that, in that town. Isn't that amazing? And now they, 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 that's where they live, in the, right in the middle of ISIS, this, this elderly German couple, just ready, like, like if I need help, I'm just going to press this button. You have no idea how much power I have in my hands here because of spiritual warfare. Nehemiah 4, 23, he says, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the God who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. And I just think that's a picture of the armor of God, my helmet of salvation, my breastplate of righteousness, my belt of truth, my shield of faith, my sword of the Spirit, my feet shod with the readiness to proclaim the gospel. I sleep in those things. I'm, I'm ready. Like you, you're not going to get me, devil. I I'm, 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 I'm always have my arm on. And then it says this, and each kept his weapon in his right hand. You're building with your left hand. You're fighting with your right hand. You're building, you're fighting, you're building, you're fighting. Number seven, I can't go into it, but Satan will tempt us into into evil. Number eight, Satan will threaten to damage your reputation. Number nine, Satan wants to lead you into resumption. How much time have we got? 15 minutes, Vess? I can do this one. In Nehemiah 6 verse 12, we read that um, Tobiah and Sambalat hired the prophet um, Shemaiah. And he had come to Nehemiah and said to him, you need, these guys are going to kill you. Come with me and come hide in the temple. Now, Nehemiah couldn't go hide in the temple because he's not a priest. You see, the, the devil wants to lead us into presumption. He wants to lead us to the place where we operate outside of our mandate because of what pride or because of fear, we begin to do this thing. It wasn't Nehemiah's mandate to go into the temple. We had seen this with um, one of Israel's kings who had gone in to offer um, sacrifice before God. It's not the role of the king. It's the role of the priest to do that. And so he stepped outside of the mandate that God had given him. And uh, it's just a reminder, friends, that there are divine protocols for us to follow. I'm convinced that um, we see in Scripture is a pattern that if we will follow that pattern, we can walk in the blessing of God. We can walk in the favor of God, and we can walk in the protection of God. And when we step out of those protocols, we expose ourselves. There's a reason why Paul writes that he says to the church in Corinth, take that man and hand him over to Satan. They were not, to, they were, the instruction wasn't to actually take him and take him to some satanic church and put him inside of the satanic church. What he was telling them to do was put him out of the church. See, in the church, you're not handed over to Satan. There's a, there's a protection we have when we are gathered together and submitted into a church that it, we don't have when we rebel and we end up outside of that place. There's a protection that a wife has in submitting to a husband. There's a protection a husband has in submitting to Christ. There's a protection the church has in submitting to the elders. There's a protection the elders have in recognizing that they will give an account for the sheep that God has called them to lead. And the enemy wants to trap us by getting us to do something that seems right. Like, like you know, you can justify it. You can find a reason for it. But actually, it's a violation of God's word. And friends, I want to encourage you. And the, the, the way to get around this is to fear God much more than you fear man. And to fear God much more than you love the praises of men. It's to keep God's ways at the forefront of our minds. And you can't do that if you're not in the word of God. I am, 
God has blessed me with a, with a really good memory. I, 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 it's just him. It's not me. It's just I can read the Word of God. I remember so much of it just like easy. Um, and maybe that's like it for, for you as well. But I, I can, like my, at any point, my brain will flood with scriptures that can help me in a situation. And I think there is something of God, if you will give yourself to the reading of the Scriptures, that even if you don't have a naturally good memory, that when you need it, the Holy Spirit will bring the Scriptures to the forefront like that. And uh, God will, will say, this is not my way. You'll, you'll recognize that this path that's been set before you that, you, that the enemy wants you to go down, is not a path that God has for you. And then also you need to have godly counsel around you. And men and women that will speak God's truth into your life. Not people that will just pat you on the back. You know, we're, it's like with some kids caught in porn, the person he needs to go to to confess that to is not some other kid who's caught in porn. You know, like he'll go to him and say, hey, Joe, I just want to come and confess that I've, I've been um, caught in, you know, this week's been a bad week for porn. How many times do you look at it? Like three times. Oh, that's fine, but I looked at it four times. That's not the guy you want to go to. Do you know what I mean? You want to go to the guy that's actually got victory in that area. And uh, in every, every one of us should be able to go to somebody that we can speak to, that will speak the truth to us in love. That will not just pat us on the back or make us feel good about ourselves, but will actually speak the truth to us. Beware that Satan doesn't lead us into presumption. And lastly, Satan seeks to bring us down to his level. In Nehemiah 6 verse 2, there's this great passage where the enemy now, like I can just see this, these, these guys are so frustrated, like everything they've tried with Nehemiah hasn't worked, you know. So they, they decide, they send this message to Nehemiah and they say to him, why don't you come down to the plain of, I think it's Onan, and uh, come let's negotiate. And um, the wonderful thing is that Nehemiah is such a discerning leader and he recognizes the fact that whenever you negotiate with the enemy, it's an ambush. So they go, whenever you negotiate with the enemy, it's an ambush. Compromising with the devil or making truces with him leads to our harm and stock, stops the work of the gospel. And I believe we do this, and I'll say this carefully, whenever the enemy can get us to focus on something other than the high calling of God. Life is full of so many wonderful things to do. And I'm not talking about being a full-time pastor like, like you've got to be a full-time pastor. That's not, that's not the high calling of God. The high calling of God is for us to proclaim, to live and to demonstrate the gospel. And you can do that in your office, and you can do that in your neighborhood, and you can do that amongst your friends, and you can do that with your family. That's, that is, requires no office in the church to be able to do. That is the high calling of God. There's so many things that God has given us in this world to enjoy, and we must enjoy them. And, from time to, and we must give some of our attention to those things. But every one of those things exists secondary to this high calling that God has given us. So it's wonderful to come to Dubai to make money or to um, you know, gain some life experience or to get a different perspective of the world. But your, your number one calling is that you've got to live, proclaim, and demonstrate the gospel. Whatever, it's, it's great to have a hobby. I love riding my bicycle and racing. and It's great to have that, but it's secondary to this high calling of um, living, proclaiming, and demonstrating the gospel. And what happens is the enemy tries to bring us to this place where we focus on some other kingdom. It might be your business. It might be your children. It might be your future husband that you haven't yet met or whatever it is that you, uh, that you want to focus on instead of keeping that thing as, as number one. And what often happens is because if you've been around for a while, you know this is a, it's a hard race to run. This is not easy. You know, if, if um, <laughs> I said to the other day, I 
I was injured. I couldn't ride my bike. So I decided, yeah, I'll just run. You know, I need to do two hours of exercise. I'll just run for two hours. I had no idea that running was so different to riding a bicycle. And so I set out to run. On the first hour, I seemed okay. And then it just became hell. It was like grannies were overtaking me walking. I was just shuffling along, nearly dead like this. I was, it was, the, the run was just so long. If I'd stopped after an hour, I would have been like a champion, like Rocky or something. But, but as the hour went into the second hour, I was just so unbelievably broken. And our Christian walk can be like that. We're like, great, and then it just gets harder and harder. And we think, you know what? Time out, devil. Uh, let's, let's make an agreement. I'll leave you alone if you leave me alone. And devil says, absolutely fine. Of course, I mean, devil never would lie to us. Hey, Woody. So he says, you concentrate on your career and I'll leave you alone. And you just watch how at the moment when you least expect it, he comes and he just smacks the feet out from underneath you. He, I thought we had a deal. He said, my, he, Jesus said, he is the father of lies. You cannot trust him. And um, we, we, there is no neutral ground. And our, so, so we keep that kingdom um, goal that God has for us at the forefront all the time. That, that's the only way that we fight against him. And you think, well, if I, if I pull that down a little bit, I, I might have a little bit less turmoil and, and chaos in my life. You might at first, but it's going to be just spiraling down. There's been some days in ministry where Linda has said to me, can't we just leave it? There's some days I've wanted to. I've laid in bed at night when I've been in Dubai after some particularly difficult weeks and said, Okay, God, please let me go back into business. I'll, I'll, I'll sit at the back of the church and I'll be quiet. I won't be noisy. I won't argue with the pastor. I'll tithe 20%, Lord. Just let me go back into business. And uh, God doesn't care too much for my little moans at night like that. He just reminds me, this is why I called you, because it's going to be hard. And every one of us are called. And Linda will say to me sometimes, like, can't we just do something else? You know? And I'll say to her, baby, I, I'm too scared to do anything else. Not ministry. I'm too scared to do anything else but be obedient to God. I'm too scared to do anything else but follow Him and where He leads me. It's the one place I know that no matter what else comes, no matter how hard it is, I've got the grace of God. If I do something else, if I focus my attention on this or this or this or this thing, then I have no idea what's coming. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 14, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. Nehemiah gives one of the best responses. You know, like when somebody says something or does something to you, and then a few hours later you get home and you think, oh, I should have said this, you know. This would have been the thing to say. This would have put them in their place. Well, Nehemiah got it like right away. They came to him and said, come down, let's negotiate. And he says to the messenger, take this message back to them. And this is the message I want you to speak over your own life. Nehemiah 6 verse 3. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Leslie Newbegin, who I quoted at the beginning, is this, was this um, English missionary that went to India and uh, preached the gospel there for a number of decades. And when he came back to England, he realized England needed missionaries as well, you know. And so he's got this incredible passion for the gospel of God. And I love what he says. I want to finish with this quote. Because this thing that God has called us to is not this, this arduous, horrible thing. And we start, I start off by reminding you of how beautiful and wonderful the gospel is. That we who were created, and we, we looked and we saw on the 
the screen today, all, all of creation of Africa, giraffes and elephants and everything else. Those are created things. We are created things. We are closer to them than we will ever be to the creator God. We who were created, the enemies of God, um, we know our own sinfulness have been not only won through the death of Jesus Christ, but adopted and to become the sons and daughters of God. And so Leslie Newbegin says this, the church's witness among the nations is at heart the overflow of a gift. The boldness and the expectancy are the marks of those who have been surprised by joy. Beautiful, eh? The boldness and the expectancy are the marks of those who have been surprised by joy and know that there are still surprises to come because God is great. And friends, there's more to come still. And my exhortation to you as a church and as individual believers is uh, the same as God spoke over me, is the gospel must go. And wherever you've become the victim of one of the enemy's tactics, one of those things, um, every one of us, is at least one of those things the enemy has been at work at in our lives. And maybe tonight there's an opportunity for the Lord just to um, open your eyes to it, to set you free by the power of the truth of uh, what he actually says about you and about your situation and a fresh commission upon your life to be effective and fruitful again. And so can I pray today with every right? Why don't we stand? You've been sitting for a long time. I'll pray just for a couple of minutes and then we'll be done. Lord, we, um, we're so grateful that Paul wrote the, those words in Scripture when he said, I will boast all the more in my weakness. We're so conscious of our own frailties. Um, it's kind of like, Lord, even the moments when we, are, when we seem to be doing the best, it's like we're going to be tripped up by those silly things called pride and arrogance and those kind of things. And the moments, Lord God, when we, um, when we ought to be just leaning in on you and, and trusting you, Lord God, we can... We can slip into doubt and unbelief and begin to rely upon ourselves and so on, Lord God. And so I want to pray right now, Lord God, first of all, that you would just take any condemnation of any person that is in this room tonight. We are so incredibly grateful for the gospel. and We're so grateful for your son that you sent him to die in our place upon the cross. And we're so grateful that we don't just meet the cross once and then somehow have to be perfect, but that we meet the cross every single day in this journey that we're on, Lord God. And we find forgiveness and we find um, acceptance afresh every single time. We are your sons and your daughters. We never, ever have to worry about being rejected. And so I just pray this incredible spirit of acceptance upon every single one of your people here. But Lord, you've also given us this amazing mandate. Um, you've, you've, the word of Paul is, because of this gospel, I'm suffering and in chains, but the word of God cannot be chained. And Lord, I, I thank you that the, the gospel is worth suffering for. The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is worth being enchained, in chains for. But we're also so grateful that the word cannot be chained. And in this season of COVID and uncertainty and everything else that is going on around us, the world can be going backwards and forwards and not knowing what to do. But Lord, we know why we're here. We do be um, those that proclaim your gospel, those that live it in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, in our finances, in our health, etc. And those that demonstrate it as we pray for the sick and as we open our hands to the poor, etc. As we step out, Lord God, as you've called us to do it. 
And I thank you that you've called every single man and woman that's here. Not not one of us is off the hook. Not one of us is um, inadequate or unable to be used. Every one of us has got something that we're called to do to build that section of the wall in front of our house, Lord God. And if each person at King City does that, that enables King City to do what you've called them to do. And as each church does what you've called them to, that enables the kingdom to come in a city and in a nation, Lord God. And so I just pray in Jesus' mighty name that everyone would understand and receive a fresh commission tonight to take your gospel. And where, Lord God, we have been the victims of the enemy's tactics, I pray that you would open our eyes to it, Lord God. And instead of falling for his lies and being tempted by him into um, coming down to his level, taking our eyes off the gospel or stepping out in presumption or whatever it is, Lord God, that we would instead turn our attention to you and say, Lord, and won't you lead us out of this cul-de-sac that we've got into? Won't you um, lead us from this dead end back onto the highway again um, of pursuing you? And Lord, I know that as we do that, that um, we will know your kingdom more than ever. And your kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy. And those things that have eluded us at times, your peace and your joy, more precious than anything else on the face of the earth, will become ours with increasing measure, Lord God. And I pray that tonight, I pray that joy will begin to well up, Lord God, in our hearts, and, and your peace would come. Let this be a new season, Lord God, over lives and over churches, Lord. Whatever is gone is gone. Whatever is done is done. That this is a new day and a fresh moment, Lord God, for us to pursue you. And even now as the devil would seek to lie, Satan, I shut your mouth in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that your voice would be loud in our hearts as you speak over us your truth and your purpose and your plans for our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.